Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is the Starship Sofa, show number 64. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show number 64. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, so hello everyone. I hope everyone, like I say, is fine and dandy. I hope that weather, that cold snap hasn't caught any of you out there. It caught me out one night and I couldn't get to work on a back shift, on a, on a night shift, shall I say. Yeah, so give you a little heads up what is happening in today's show. Editorial by my good self entitled The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Mm. We have poetry from Samantha Henderson. Flash fiction comes today from Edward M. Lena. We have Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news for February. Another fact article, this time by English Assassin, comes in with a section on Kim Stanley Robinson. Main fiction tonight is by the fantastic Ted Kuzmatska with The Art of Alchemy. Do look out for that. So, fun show. I hope you will stick around and, like I say, enjoy it. <laughs> So we'll jump straight in with the little editorial by my good self, as you know, entitled The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And it's really basically three little bits clipped together, all stuck together to make one editorial. First off is The Good is getting together again with the British Science Fiction Association and we're going to start running the best short story narrations, which is hopefully coming next week. It's going to start everything. I'm just trying to plan everything out there and get everything set together. But it's going to start on Monday the 23rd of February, which is this Monday coming, basically. Then the 24th and the 25th. 
The 25th would be next Wednesday, which should have been Oral Delight Show. What I'm going to do is basically shunt you that one up to the, I think it's the 27th. That's right, the Friday of the 27th. Because I want to get it in, that Oral Delight. I know everything is a little bit cramped at the end there, but I want to get it in on February or in February because it's all to do with the art, you know, and Skeet's designing the art and... It's a February month. It's the end of the month. That's when the art comes out. And it's a great story. And I didn't want to get it kind of in, in March because that's March's artwork. You know what I mean? Used up. So that's the reason why I'm going to hopefully, if I get all the narrations back, I've got two back now and nearly sure I'm going to get that other one back. So that's going to start on the 23rd, which is the Monday, like I say, the Tuesday, 24th and the 25th. So that's something to look forward to. And also in this kind of the good, if you like to talk about, which is kind of going off subject a little bit, I want to talk about Twitter. For some reason, I am really hooked now on Twitter. And what I'm finding is it's something, you know, like we're all together in this kind of little community, this little hive. If you're kind of in the Twitter or get on board with Twitter, it seems as if we can kind of, it lasts all week. Do you know what I mean? Because you know what everyone else is doing. And you, it's, I'm finding the more and more I'm using Twitter. Although, you know, you, you first discover and you think, what's the point of this? A few little words. What's the point of it? Well, the point is, it is just like, it's the cement in the kind of community. Do you know what I mean? That's the way I'm looking at it now. I went on a walk with the dogs, as a little example. And, you know, I can take pictures of the walk and the dog and upload them. And everyone who's like following us can like interact, you know, and just write their own little comments. And it's throughout the day, you know, and, you know, I react with other people's comments. And it's just like what I say, it's all this little hub of Starship Sova. It's just what I feel is with Twitter. It's just the way, you know, the web 2.0, it's one of them processes, which is just making it a much more user-friendly experience. You know, it literally is bringing everyone on a day-to-day basis, in together, into this little hub. Just with, like I say, simple few lines, but it's it's meaningful, some of them, you know, and it's like links to places, pictures. Do you know, I got to see a little part of Diane Severson's bookshelf or book collection. Man, even just, you know, join up and kind of go and have a look for that. Diane's bookshelf is massive and there's hundreds. And everyone that's kind of commented is just a little bit jealous. <laughs> It's like, wow. So please, look on Twitter for Starship Sofa. Start following me. And then you kind of pick up everyone else who's kind of interactive. Do you know what I mean? So come on, Amy. Yes, that's you as well. Jim Campanella, sir. Get your finger on. And Fred. I remember Fred saying, he wasn't much of a Twitter. Do you know, it's another another process he's got to go through. Fred, get your finger out. Get on Twitter and get interacting. You can do it, sir. Come into the 21st century. Twitter address is Starship Sofa. No excuse now. So everyone, and I've only got like, I think there's 120 following. Do you know what I mean? So, and I was looking at, I think, Will Will Wheaton. That's right. The, The lad from, you know, the next generation. 89,000 people, 100,000 actually, just this morning when I checked, 100,000 people following him and kind of interacting and stuff like that. Neil Gaiman's only got about 30,000. The BBC News has only got 50,000. <laughs> this guy's huge. So 
let's come over and sign up to kind of or start following the Starship Sova, and you get loads of little things. You know what I mean? I'm like releasing little things there that are kind of vital to the show. No, saying a writer's give us a story. I'll tell you straight away. You know, I'll give clues of what actually the editorial was called. I uploaded that on the Twitter and let everyone know there what this week's editorial was going to become. You know, called so a great reason to sign up to get like just snippets on a kind of a daily day basis of what's going on and interact with me and interact with everyone in this community. You know, emails are great and Skype's great for backwards and forwards chatting on. It's only one to one. But everyone can kind of get into this Twitter and just work it ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Upload pictures. We all go and check it out. We all comment. Do you know what I mean? One big happy family. That is the good of Web 2.0. The bad. Now the bad is. A little bit going back to the British Science Fiction Association. There was four stories this year for up for nomination. Paul McCauley. Ted Chang and Mary Rickett and Greg Egan. And this is the bad. For some reason, I don't know why, I can't work it out, Greg Egan has refused to let the Starship Silver play his story. Even though, get this, even though it's on another podcast. Now, I don't know for what reason he's thinking like this. It's clearly a man that doesn't understand this whole Web 2.0 experience, you know, and, and linking and sharing and sharing. I don't know if you had the the understanding or the reasoning that I might not tell where this original story or where this story originally aired. Do you know what I mean? And I would have done. Do you know what I mean? All I was wanting to do, get the story off. And I know the lads that did it would have been more than happy to let me play this story and let me put it on the show. You know, links back. Yeah, go there. Thanks, great lads. Great. For some reason, Greg Egan has refused point blank to do it. So... I mean, you know me, that's up to him. That's his, his prerogative. He wants people to go over there. Great. I ain't now, for that reason, I'm not going to link to it. I'm not even going to mention his story again after the day. Do you know what I mean? It's, and if it wins, it wins. It wins by, you know, it's a British science fiction. It's their kind of awards. It's, it's up to them. If they want that to win, it's, I haven't even bothered because of it. Do you know what I mean? Because of that one reason. I haven't even bothered went over and listened to it myself. To be quite honest, I was just thinking, and I got the couple of replies that I got back were like three words, four words, I think it was at one point, wasn't the first one. You know, and I wrote the lad a nice email and I said, I'm working with the British, you know, Science Fiction Association. Is it okay? You know, we just want to play it. He come back the f- straight away, no, sorry. Basically, that was it. So I explained a little bit more. You know what I mean? I thought, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Exactly the same. It's on another podcast. There's no reason to. That was it. So, that's it. That is the bad. Like I say, a man that doesn't grasp the web and links and stuff like that, in my eyes anyways, you know. That's all I'm going to say about it. Finished. Well, we've had the good, we've had the bad, now the ugly. And the ugly is, and I could see this coming a mile away, to be quite honest, or, you know, a blind man on a galloping horse could probably see this coming. Audible, for whatever reasons it's up to them, has not picked Starship Sova to be in their kind of February program. So there's no Audible advertising this week. And like I say, I knew that would be coming, you know what I mean? There's times, you know, these times now are getting a kind of bit of harsh. And I don't know if it's for what reason, do you know what I mean? I don't think it would be because it's like Starship Sova and I was doing it wrong, <laughs> to be quite honest. I hope not, you know what I mean? I hope someone would tell us. 
somebody somewhere has just said, right, we'll keep it kind of blank at that level. You know, we're doing that kind of advertising. And like I say, I knew this was going to come, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice while it's there. And it, if it's not, it's not. Why, you know, I always wanted to kind of set in the progress or set in the workings to keep just ourselves supporting Starship Sofa as the kind of bedrock. Do you know what I mean? If, if that goes, then it kind of goes, you know, and the only one who's going to after, say, a donations field would be pulling the plug, would probably miss a Starship Sofa when it gets to the I'm kind of using the house fund to fund it. So at the minute, Starship Sofa is purely, and this is hand on heart, purely relying on everybody out there who listens to this, who enjoys this show. And I just want to say a big thank you to, to making that possible because, like you say, that advertising just went straight away, no ifs or buts. And, you know, that's not my problem and it's it's their choice and I haven't got a say in the matter. Do you know what I mean? And I'll, you'll certainly hear if the comebacks here for the March times, you know, I'll run adverts, that'll be great. But for the February one, they didn't want to take it up. So we have to kind of rely on ourselves to kind of fund this and to make it happen. Do you know what I mean? And again, I've just repeated myself there. A big thank you to the to the people that do the donations and things like that. If you don't, do you know what I mean? It's this is all our thing. It's not kind of I'm not raking any money in. All I'm doing is kind of making sure we get this show out, you know, once a week. And hopefully, if you enjoy that, you'll do the right thing. You know, again, thank everyone that's kind of contributed with the two pound fifty a month, or they're just kind of one-off donations. These are amazing people. Thank you so much. And on that, that is editorial, good, the bad, and the ugly. I think we should kick in with some poetry. Today's poetry comes by Samantha Henderson. We've played a couple of Samantha's poems before, and it is narrated by Annette Bowman. Now, I'm going to put links to Samantha's site and Annette's site on there. Annette's site is the stars are made of fire.blogspot.com. Great little website that for kind of linking to all different aspects of science fiction out there. So please pop over there. And like I say, do pop over to Samantha Henderson's site as well. Her Opals by Samantha Henderson. This poem first appeared in Lost in the Dark. Her Opals. The first, a child's necklace given by a family friend. On a silver chain, two beads, one atop the other. The smaller touched with blue, the other chipped. Lost on moving day. The second, a ring, white stone set between two gold wings, suitable for a twelve-year-old. First fit the middle finger, then ring, then pinky. Lost during freshman year. Third, an unmounted stone, square cut, bought from a wandering couple just out of Cooper Pedy. RV full of pretty things. They fed her lettuce and sliced tomatoes while she made her choice. Set with tourmalines, she wore it on her wedding day. Last, an antique brooch. A first anniversary gift. Body, a white fire cabochon. Pearl head, diamond eyes. Crooked silver legs. 1910, perhaps. It had that look. She loved it, though insects made her nervous. That night crept from the jewelry box, across the carpet, up the bedspread, and slipped in the corner of her mouth. In her belly it dissolved, and everything started to change. And there you go. Samantha, thank you so much. That really was a very nice poem. 
And a great reading by Annette. Annette, thank you so much. So it's time to move on to the flash fiction. And we have a very special flash fiction. One of the big guns, the big hitters from Analogue, Mr. Edward M. Lena. I'll just give you a little heads up on Edward. Has a degree in physics and computer science as an engineer. Has developed projects for NASA, consultant work in varying from telecommunications to national defence. His books include Probe, Moonstruck and the collection Creative Destruction, as well as collaborative series of Ringworld prequels, Fleet of Worlds and Juggler of Worlds with Larry Niven. Mr. Lena has a new book out there and I'll give you a little kind of blurb on it because it sounds fantastic. It came out in Tor Hardcover. Oh, it came out in November 2008, so it's out there now. Do check it out. What if a computer virus could hurt more than just your computer? In an age where computers are a fact of life, figuring prominently in our workday lives, we've learned to deal with worms, bugs and viruses. Malevolent little programs that can send our computers haywire. Annoying, sure. Career crippling and business derailing even. But we can deal with that. We call tech support or even buy a new computer. In the grand scheme of things, it is really minor annoyance. A computer virus lives up to its name. It doesn't hurt us. It harms our computers. In Fool's Experiment, Edward M. Lena examines implications of what could happen to these minor irritations taking on a life of their own and begin taking lives on their own. That sounds fantastic. Narration today comes from our good friend, Mr. Dale Manley. Dale, thank you so much for this. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights, very proud to present. Where Credit is Due by Edward M. Lerner Give me a one-handed economist. All my economists say, on the one hand, on the other. Harry S. Truman Winslow Justinian Prescott waited outside the packed press room. The cacophony within was extraordinary. The White House correspondents variously suspicious, curious, and baffled. They knew something momentous was afoot. He had not held a press conference for months. Prescott adjusted his tie, flicked a bit of lint from the lapel of his suit, and stepped inside. The President of the United States, a booming voice intoned. The noise stopped like a switch had been thrown. Few of these correspondents liked him. Some didn't even respect him, but by God, they all respected the office. He had the best job in the world, and he meant to keep it. After his announcement, all the more dramatic, as an October timeout from the campaign trail, re-election was in the bag. Prescott stepped behind the podium bearing the presidential seal. I have a statement and then I'll take questions. Text appeared on the teleprompter. Ours is a vibrant and sophisticated economy, powered by 350 million complicated people. And America is a cog in the larger world economy, driven by 8 billion people. Subtext. The recession is no one's fault. It's not surprising the economy sometimes performs less well than we would hope. The wonder is that anyone dares try to guide it. Before him, styli scribbled. Cameras stared, and solid-state recorders did, well, nothing discernible. He kept reading. 1776 
will ever be associated, and rightly so, with America's Declaration of Independence. But a second revolution also began that year. In the hollow display beside the podium, a stolid and bewigged figure appeared. In March of 1776, Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, published his book, a leather-bound volume. Its title emblazoned in gold leaf replaced Smith. An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Reporters squirmed. He told the speechwriters to cut the history lesson. He was the president, not the class know-it-all. Many economists followed Smith. They found things to agree upon, and more not to. Grins throughout the crowd. Politicians, lawyers, and economists. No one objected to a pot shot taken at any of them. They weren't entirely wrong. A few chuckles. Everyone was right. About some of us, some of the time. What have economists asserted? People make rational decisions. His raised eyebrow drew another laugh. People value money above all else. If that were true anywhere, D.C. wasn't the place. Here the pursuit of wealth ranked a distant second to the quest for power. Taxes are too high and too low. The squirming stopped. He had them in the palm of his hand. No psychologist would claim people are always rational. She'd be out of business. Laughter. He skipped a riff about sociologists. Always leave your audience wanting more. It's no one's fault. It's hard to know even our own minds. We wonder what our significant other or child or neighbor might do minutes from now. Yet we expect economists and politicians to predict how we'll all act and react for years to come. Harry Truman Prepare to stand corrected. The buck won't stop here. In Prescott's mind's ear, a theatrical drumroll. People are rational and rationalizing, methodical and impulsive, principled and expedient, wise and whimsical, self-interested and selfless. People are human. Fast forward through economists claiming mercantilism, whatever that was, and capitalism and socialism and communism were the way to go, past supply side and demand side, past voodoo economics and the gross national happiness. Our economy became too complex for any of us to comprehend, but this administration has the solution. That made everyone sit straighter. Greedy or generous, rich or poor, playing now or saving for later, who can calculate all the possibilities? Economics is a job for someone who can understand it all. All our needs, all our moods, all our aspirations, all together, all the time. Economics is a discipline grown too large for the human mind to grasp. It's become a task for an artificial intelligence. My experts assure me, like all experts, they assured him of nothing. Every remark sagged beneath the weight of caveats. 
They whined about more supercomputers, extra data storage, additional statistics as inputs. Above all, they wanted yet more testing. If technology were the solution, then past techie dawdling was the problem, and he needed to take credit now, not after the election. Well, the presidency had its perks. Few dare say no to you. Fewer could make it stick. Certainly, very few civil service scientists and programmers. Prescott skipped to the end of his prepared statement. The ancient tome shimmered and was gone. A virtual desktop took its place. It's time to introduce the father of a new era in economics, delivered by the leader to whose stewardship your readers and listeners and viewers will entrust the next four years. I give you the economist who thinks like us all. He rolled the podium trackball over an unlabeled icon and clicked. Laughter erupted, but this time they weren't laughing with him. Something moved in his peripheral vision. Prescott turned toward the scrolling words. You have reached the computing array of A.I. Dam Smith. I am taking a sick day. Please leave a message. The shouted questions began. There you go. Thank you very much, sir. Edward, thank you, sir. Links on. Links to Dale Malney. There you go. Go check them out. Science News. JJ Campanella. Jim, come on. Tell us all. Greetings and welcome to this February 2009 Science News Update. This is your host, Jim Campanella. The topic of this month's update mostly came to me because I have not been getting enough sleep lately. My eight-month-old son is still not sleeping through the night. Although my lovely wife actually takes care of him most of the time, his squealing cry can wake the dead. And in the cold, dry winter months, my almost three-year-old daughter gets late-night nosebleeds so bad that you may be reminded of the prom sequence from Carrie. So, as you can probably guess, I have not been getting my recommended eight hours of sleep a night. The weird thing has been that although I've noticed that I can pretty much barely stay up past nine anymore, sad as that is, I have not suffered much during the day. I don't feel particularly tired at work or even when I get up at my usual 5.30 a.m. The question that occurred to me is whether I'm truly hurting myself by sleeping about six hours a night. My wife, who power naps, thinks that I'm insane not to catch up on sleep, and she insists that it will make me quite sick in the end. I argue that I feel no ill effects from lack of sleep, and I'm doing just fine. Although she did point out that I had a sinus infection for more than two weeks, which she blames on lack of sleep, reminding me that I was never that sick before our son Eli was born. I, of course, chalk it up to coincidence and some particularly nasty rhinoviruses this season. So I decided to take a look at the recent science literature and find out whether lack of sleep actually is detrimental, or at least what conclusions that scientists have come to about this. And what I found was seemed to be a, an oddly mixed bag of both good and not-so-good conclusions, as, as you'll see. So one of the most recent papers that came out, uh, December 7th, this December 7th, uh, in the journal Nature Genetics, suggests that lack of sleep does have some particularly bad effects. Dr. Orphew Buxton of Harvard Medical School found out 
but blood sugar levels are actually affected by our sleep patterns. Melatonin is an important hormone which helps to regulate sleep. Melatonin is produced by the pineal gland, which was at one time called the third eye because of its sensitivity to light changes in the environment. The pineal gland is a reddish-gray body about the size of a pea, and it's located in the brain, essentially in the middle of the forehead, in the forebrain. It appears to play a major role in sexual development, hibernation in animals, and metabolism, and seasonal breeding. Now, the production of melatonin by the pineal gland is stimulated by darkness and inhibited by light. Now, try to follow this. This is a little complicated here in terms of the actual, the actual nervous connections. The photosensitive cells in the retina detect light and directly signal the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Then they entrain it to be like a 24-hour clock. That's the typical clock of all organisms on Earth. Then the fibers project from that part of the brain to the paraventricular nuclei, which then relays the circadian signals to the spinal cord, and then out of the sympathetic nervous system to the superior cervical ganglion, and then to the pineal gland. A serious, confusing mess, isn't it? Anyway, melatonin itself is a derivative of the amino acid tryptophan, which also has other functions in the central nervous system. There is evidence that inhibition of the production of melatonin actually can keep puberty from occurring. And that uh, if, for example, there's a tumor in the pineal gland, it can actually cause puberty to come much, much more early than you would normally expect in a child. This hormone for a long time was thought to only interact with nerve cells, but it turns out not to be the case. It actually binds to a receptor protein on the outside of all cells, and it helps to actually trigger sleep or wake-related changes in those cells. And we're not just talking about nerve cells. We are talking about all cells in the body. Now, all organisms have a 24-hour clock that's controlled by the degradation of molecular compounds. If this degradation goes awry, then your circadian rhythm changes, your 24-hour clock rhythm. And if that gets messed up, your sleep schedule changes. So if, if you don't actually sleep on the 24-hour time clock that almost every organism on Earth shares, then you'll become depressed and obese, and your immune system will no longer function well, and you may even die. Well, the findings of Buxton's study suggest that there's a correlation between diabetes, blood sugar levels, and sleep. At night, melatonin levels go up and you become drowsy. In a study of about 36,000 people, it was found that a single base pair change in the DNA, that's about the simplest mutation that you can get, and this change occurred in a receptor protein for melatonin. If you had this change, it increased blood sugar levels, decreased the amount of insulin in your body, and actually increased your chances of getting type 2 diabetes. Now, that doesn't actually say anything about uh, sleep itself. And sleeping, what it does say is that uh, you have to have this receptor functioning. Well, Additional findings were that the people who have low levels of melatonin and get less than five hours of sleep a night are, as I said, much more likely to have type 2 diabetes. I mean, and this sounds like it's simply a genetic abnormality and that it won't affect anybody who's young and healthy. But the study further found that if you disrupt the sleeping patterns of young adults and prevent them from entering deep sleep for just three nights, 
their sugar levels become discombobulated and they can no longer properly regulate those sugar levels, at least temporarily, while they're not getting enough sleep. They also became insulin resistant if the study was continued, just as somebody with diabetes is insulin resistant. Dr. Goncalo Epicasis of the University of Michigan kind of sums up the conclusion of this study very nicely. Quote, lack of sleep disrupts circadian rhythm, and the mutant melatonin receptor disrupts the circadian clock. These are two different ways to interrupt the clock, but both lead to the same endpoint, which is diabetes. Unquote. Great. So that means that if I don't get more than five hours of sleep a night, I may get diabetes? That's not a really good thing to know. I went back to the literature, of course, and what did I find? Well, another paper was published this January in the Archives of Internal Medicine. This one suggests that lack of sleep increases your susceptibility to the common cold, which kind of suggests my wife might have been right. The work was published out of Sheldon Cohen's lab at Carnegie Mellon University. A total of 153 healthy men and women who ranged in age from 21 to 55 years old volunteered to participate in the study. For two weeks, they reported their sleep duration and the amount of time that they actually spent in bed asleep and whether they felt rested. Average scores for each sleep variable were calculated over a 14-day baseline in this two-week period. Subsequently, participants were quarantined and administered nasal drops that contained cold virus. And then they were monitored for the development of a clinical cold on the day before and five days after exposure. The results were this. The participants with less than seven hours of sleep were three times more likely to develop a cold than those with eight hours or more of sleep. The participants with less than 92% ratio of time in bed asleep were five and a half times more likely to develop a cold than those with 98% of their time in bed actually asleep. By the way, the same study was done a couple of years ago with college kids in Japan, but the results were never widely accepted because the population that was being studied was kind of a strange one. The researchers could never dissect the effects of alcohol, caffeine, and poor diet in the weakening immune system versus the actual lack of sleep. And I sympathize with the researchers. I'm constantly trying to figure out whether my students do poorly on their exams for exactly those same reasons or whether they're truly as thick as I sometimes suspect. At this point in my research, now, I was actually becoming kind of worried. With the actual time I was sleeping, I was now prone to colds and diabetes. My two-week bout with a cold already suggests that these studies were not all that far off. So I went back to the literature. There had to be something out there that was good about sleeping for shorter periods of time. But no, the next thing that I came across did not make me feel any better. Dr. Julie C. Lemung of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor published a study in November of 2007 in the journal Pediatrics. The study suggested that if kids do not get enough sleep, they become obese. Her team questioned the parents of almost 800 kids from all over the United States about sleep patterns when their kids were in third grade. Then three years later, they questioned the parents again. By sixth grade, 18% of the children had become obese. Sleep patterns were strongly linked to obesity when children were in third grade when every extra hour of sleep was associated with a 40% reduction in the child's chance of becoming obese by 6th grade. 
And then in sixth grade, each additional hour above the average sleep time correlated with a 20% lower chance of obesity. The upshot is, is that the more sleep the kids got, the less chance they would become obese. Worse yet to me, in 2008, in the International Journal of Obesity, Dr. S.R. Patel published an article which basically agrees with Lumeg's conclusions, except that Patel found this to be the case in adults as well. Compared to those sleeping an average of 7-8 hours per night, and after adjusting for multiple risk factors and medical conditions, a sleep duration of less than 5 hours was associated with a body mass index that was on average 2.5 kilograms per meter squared greater in men and 1.8 kilograms per meter squared greater in women. The odds of obesity was 3.7 times greater in men and 2.3 times greater in women who slept less than 5 hours. So if I continued not to sleep well, I would become a fat diabetic with a cold. This was not looking good. Well, the last story I came across actually made me feel kind of surprised at the first three. And it certainly put them in some sort of a context. A University of California research lab in May of 2008 published results of their sleep studies in which 1.1 million people were examined. The original studies were conducted in 1981 to 1988, but there was so much data that it's taken almost 20 years to actually analyze it. And the conclusion is this. People who get only 6 to 7 hours a night of sleep have a lower death rate. Individuals who sleep eight hours or more, or less than four hours a night, were shown to have a significantly increased death rate compared to those who average six to seven hours. Also, participants who reported occasional bouts of insomnia did not have an increased mortality rate, but those individuals who took sleeping pills were more likely to die sooner. With so many participants, this was the first large-scale population study of sleep to take into consideration Variables such as age, diet, exercise, previous health problems, and risk factors such as smoking in determining the longevity among all the participants. The best survival rates were found among those who slept 7 hours a night. The study showed that a group sleeping 8 hours were 12% more likely to die within the 6-year period than those sleeping 7 hours, all other factors being equal. Even those with as little as five hours of sleep live longer than participants with eight hours or more of sleep per night. Okay, so maybe I was in the groove there. If I'm sleeping six to seven hours, then perhaps I'm okay. Perhaps I won't be obese or diabetic. Perhaps I may live longer. I guess the moral of the story is is what you need to be aiming for in all these things is, is probably moderation to one degree or another. My wife made an interesting point. She... When I was talking to her about this, she said, okay, so you're telling me that if I I basically starve myself and don't get enough sleep, that I'll live longer. Yeah, that seems to be what all the studies are saying. And her response was, yeah, I may live longer, but I'll regret being alive for all that entire period. It's not going to be much fun now, is it? I said, yeah, unfortunately, that's also probably true. One thing that these studies tell you is is that we need to understand the underlying processes that are going on and not just say, cut down on your sleep, because that's easy to say, but in many cases it's not quite so easy to do. What we really need to do is, is understand why those differences in sleep patterns really affect us and our health the way they do. Right now, we don't understand those things, and unfortunately, it may take years before we do. 
But given the story about the diabetes and the melatonin and the sugar levels, it's clear that we really don't understand the relationship, the physical relationship. Now, I'm not talking about uh, what's going on in the brain and in the nerves and why we might need to sleep. I'm talking about what's going on at the physiological cellular level during sleep. We really, really still don't understand that. And I think all these studies suggest that. Well, thank you for listening to my sleepless mumblings. As always, take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, you're a little star. Thank you very much. Get on Twitter. Yes, you've got you've got time, Jim. I know you've got bags of time, man. What? Kid, work, life? Come on. Loads of time in there. Surely. So we come on to the main fiction of the night. And last week I mentioned we did the John Scalzi short story. And, you know, I was saying what a great example of, like, a, a an enjoyable story. And it was actually mentioned on the forums. I think it was by expat Paul said... It was a good example of, and I think he, he nearly got the hammer on the nail spot on. A good old style science fiction, you know. And the story that's going to come up by Ted Kuzmatka is, and Ted is one of my favorite writers at the minute. You know what I mean? He's like his stories, God seller stories. You know, I kind of harp on about these two guys. You know, they're at their, yeah, they're cutting edge. Do you know what I mean? These are like what make me sparkle with the kind of reading. Do you know what I mean? The kind of talent. I think Ted is just one gifted storyteller. Do you know what I mean? Beginning, middle, and end, and it's just an amazing kind of ride to get there. It's one of them stories where I kind of, I'm just hoping you'll just kind of zone out and just totally go with it and just totally enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? You just get, you get lost in it, you get captivated in it, and then but before you know it, do you know what I mean? The ending's there and it's gone. You know what I mean? So hopefully stick around and listen to this. What a great story it is. Give you a little heads up on Ted. He is a complex interaction between genes and environment. I've actually read this bio once before, but I'll read it out because I like it. Over the years, he's fed tigers, worked in laboratories, shoveled coke in a steel mill blast furnace, and he now works in research where he earns a living behind the lens of an electron microscope. He lives on the north coast of USA, and at this very moment, or very close to it, his wife is going to give birth to a son. So congratulations. I don't know if it's come yet, Ted, but we're all here thinking about you, you know. Sleepless nights, well done there, Squire. Narration today comes from David Lamb. I'll put a link on to David's website. David has narrated us before and is a fine narrator, a great voice David's got. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Art of Alchemy by Ted Kazmatka. Sometimes when I came over, Veronica would already be naked. I'd find her spread out on a lawn chair behind the fence of her townhome, several sinewy yards of black skin visible to second-story windows across the park. She'd scissor her long legs, raising a languid eyelid. You have too many clothes on, she'd say. And I'd sit, run a hand along smooth, dark curves, curl pale fingers into hers. The story of Veronica is the story of this place. These steel mills and the dying little city-states around them have become a part of it somehow. Northwest Indiana, like some bizarre composite landscape we've all consented to believe in. Cornfields and slums and rich gated communities. National parkland 
and industrial sprawl. It is a place of impossible contrasts. Let it stand for the rest of the country. Let it stand for everything. On cold days, the blast furnaces assemble huge masses of white smoke across the Lake Michigan shoreline. You can still see it mornings driving I 90 on the way to work, a broad cumulus mountain range billowing from the northern horizon like we are an alpine community nestled beneath shifting peaks. Veronica was 25 when we met, just a few years younger than me. She was brilliant and beautiful and broken. Her townhome sat behind gates on the expensive side of Ridge Road and cost more than I made in five years. Her neighbors were doctors and lawyers. From the courtyard where she lay naked, you could see a church steeple, the beautiful dull green of oxidized copper rising over distant rooftops. The story of Veronica is also the story of boundaries. And that's what I think about most when I think of her now. The exact line where one thing becomes another. The exact point where an edge becomes sharp enough to cut you. We might have been talking about her work, or maybe she was just making conversation, trying to cover her nervousness. I don't remember. But I remember the rain and the hum of her BMW's engine, and I remember her saying as she took the Randolph Street exit, His name is Wojciech. Is that his first name or last? It's the only name he gave me. We took Randolph down to the loop, and the Chicago skyline reared up at us. Veronica knew the uptown streets. The restaurant on Dearborn had been her choice of location a nice $60 a plate. Kazuto bar that stayed open until 2 a.m. Trendy, clubby, dark. The big name suppliers sometimes brought her there for business dinners, if they were also trying to sleep with her. It was the kind of place wealthy people went to get drunk with other wealthy people. He claims he's from Poland, she said, but the accent isn't quite right, more Baltic than Slavic. I wondered at that, at how she knew the difference. Where's he based out of? I asked. Ukraine, formerly, but he sure as hell can't go back now. Had a long list of former this, former that, different think tanks and research labs, lots of burned bridges. Is he the guy or just the contact? He's playing like the guy, but I don't know. She hit her signal and made a left. The rain came down harder, Chicago slick bright with street lights and traffic. Green lions on the right, and at some point we crossed the river. Is he bringing it with him? I asked. I don't know. But he said he was actually bringing it? Yeah, she looked at me. He said, Jesus. Her face wore a strange expression in the red glow of dashboard light. It took me a moment to place it, then it hit me. In the year and a half I'd known her, this was the first time I'd ever seen her scared. I first met her at the lab. I say lab, and people imagine white walls and sterile test tubes, but it's not like that. It's mostly math that I do, and something close to metallurgy, all of it behind glass security walls. I check my work with a scanning electron microscope, noting crystalline lattices and surface structure microabrasions. She walked through the door behind Hal, the lab's senior supervisor. 
This is the Memory Metals Lab, Hal told her, gesturing as he entered. The girl nodded. She was young and slender, smooth dark skin, a face that seemed at first glance to be more mouth than it should. That was my initial impression of her, some pretty new hire the bosses were showing around. That's it. And then she was past me, following the supervisor deeper into the lab. At the time, I had no idea. I heard the supervisor's voice drone on as he showed her the temper ovens and the gas chromatograph in the next room. When they returned, the super was following her. I looked up from the lab bench, and she was staring at me. So you're the genius, she said. That was the first time she pointed it at me. The look. The way she could look at you with those big dark eyes and you could almost see the gears moving. Her full mouth pulled into a sensuous smile that wanted to be more than it was. A smile like she knew something you didn't. There were a dozen things I could have said. But the nuclear wind behind those eyes blasted my words away until all that was left was a sad kind of truth. Yeah, I said, I guess that's me. She turned to the supervisor. Thank you for your time. Hal nodded and left. It took me a moment to realize what had just happened. The laboratory supervisor, my direct boss, had been dismissed. Tell me, she said. What do you do here? I paused for three seconds before I spoke, letting myself process the seismic shift. Then I explained it. She smiled while I talked. I'd done it for an audience a dozen times, these little performances. It was practically a part of my job description since the last corporate merger made Upsar Nagoy the largest steel company in the world. I'd worked for three different corporations in the last two years, and I hadn't changed offices once. The mill guys called them white hats, these management teams that flew in to tour the facilities, shaking hands, smiling under their spotless white hard hats, attempting to fit their immediate surroundings into the flowchart of the company's latest international acquisitions. Research was a prime target for the tours, but here in the lab they were harder to spot, just another suit come walking through. It was hard to know who you were talking to, really, but two things were certain. The management types were usually older than the girl standing in front of me, and they'd always, up till now, been male. But I explained it like I always did. Or maybe I put a little extra spin on it. Maybe I showed off. I don't know. Nickel-titanium alloys, I said. I opened the desiccator and pulled out a small strip of steel. It was long and narrow, cut into almost the exact dimensions of a ruler. First you take the steel, I told her, holding out the dull strip of metal, and you heat it. I lit the Bunsen burner and held the steel over the open flame. Nothing happened for ten, twenty seconds. She watched me. I imagined what I must look like to her at that moment. Blue eyes trained on the warming steel, short brown hair jetting at wild angles around the safety goggles I wore on my forehead. Just another technophile lost in his obsession. It was a type. Flame licked the edges of the dull metal. Then, all at once, the metal moved. It contracted muscularly, like a living thing, twisting itself into a ribbon, a curl, a spring. 
It's caused by micro and nanoscale surface restructuring, I told her. The change in shape results from phase transformations. Martensite when cool, austenite when heated. The steel remembers its earlier configurations. The different phases want to be in different shapes. Memory metal, she said. I've always wanted to see this. What applications does it have? The steel continued to flex, winding itself tighter. Medical, structural, automotive, you name it. Medical? For broken bones, the shape memory alloy has a transition temp near body temp. You attach a plate to the brake site, and the body heat causes the alloy to contract, thereby creating a compressive force on the bone at both ends of the fracture. Interesting. They're also investigating the alloy's use in heart stents. A cool-crushed alloy tube can be inserted into narrow arteries where it will expand and open once it's heated to blood temperature. You mentioned automotive? I nodded. Automotive. The big money. Imagine that you put a small dent in your fender, I said. Instead of taking it to the shop, you pull out your hairdryer. The steel pops right back in shape. She stayed at the lab for another hour, asking intelligent questions, watching the steel cool and straighten itself. Before she left, she shook my hand politely and thanked me for my time. She never once told me her name. I watched the door close behind her as she left. Two weeks later, she was back, this time without Hal. She drifted into the lab like a ghost near the end of my shift. In the two weeks since I'd seen her, I'd learned a little about her. I'd learned her name, and that her corporate hat wasn't just management, but upper management. She had an engineering degree from out east, then Ivy League grad school by age 20. She gave reports to men who ran a corporate economy larger than most countries. She was somebody's golden child, fast-tracked to the upper circles. The company based her out of the East Chicago Regional Headquarters, but occasionally flew her to Korea, India, South Africa, to the latest corporate takeovers and the constant stream of new facilities that needed integration. She was an organizational savant, a voice in the ear of the global acquisition market. The transglobals had long since stopped pretending that they were about actually making things. It was so much more Darwinian than that now. The big fish ate the little fish. And Upsar Nagoy, by anyone's standards, was a great white shark. You grow fast enough, long enough, and pretty soon you need an army of gifted people to understand what you own and how it all fits together. She was part of that army. So what else have you been working on? she asked. When I heard her voice, I turned. Veronica, her smooth, pretty face, utterly expressionless, the smile gone from her full mouth. Okay, I said, and this time I showed her my real tricks. I showed her what I could really do, because she'd asked. Martensite like art, a gentle flame, a slow, smooth origami unfolding. We watched it together, metal and fire, a thing I'd never shown anyone before. This is beautiful, she said. I showed her the butterfly, my little golem, its only movement a slow flexing of its delicate steel wings as it passed through phase changes. You made this? I nodded. There are no mechanical parts, I told her, just a single solid sheet of steel. It's like magic, she said. She touched it with a slender index finger. Just science, I said, sufficiently advanced.
We watched the butterfly cool, wings flapping slowly. Finally, it began folding in on itself, cocooning the true miracle. The breakthrough was micro-degree shifting, I said. It gives you more design control. Why this design? I shrugged. You heat it slow, an ambient rise, it turns into a butterfly. What happens if you heat it fast? I looked at her. It turns into a dragon. That night, at her townhome, she took her clothes off slow, her mouth prehensile and searching. Although I was half a head taller... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I found her legs were as long as mine. Strong, lean runner's legs. Calf muscles bunched high like fists. Afterward, we lay on her dark sheets, a distant street light filtering through the blinds, drawing a pattern on the wall. Are you going to stay the night? she asked. Do you want me to? She was silent for a moment. Yeah, I want you to. Then I'll stay. The ceiling fan above her bed hummed softly, circulating the air, cooling the sweat on my bare skin. I've been doing research on you for the last week, she said, on what you do. Checking up on me? She ignored the question and draped a slick arm across my shoulder. Nagoy has labs in Asia running parallel to yours. Did you know that? No. From years before the Upsar merger, smart alloys with chemical triggers instead of heat, and stranger things, too— a special copper-aluminum-nickel alloy that's supposed to be triggered by remote frequency. Hit a button on a transmitter and you get a phase change by some kind of resonance. I didn't understand most of it. More of your magic steel. Not magic, I said. Modern chemistry grew out of the art of alchemy. At what point does it start being alchemy again? It's always been alchemy at the heart of it. We're just getting better at it now. I should tell you, she said, curling her fingers into my hair, I don't believe in interracial relationships. 
That was the first time she said it, a thing she'd repeat often during the next year and a half, usually when we were in bed. You don't believe in them? No, she said. In the darkness, she was a silhouette, a complication of shadows against the window light. She wasn't looking at me, but at the ceiling. I studied her profile, the rounded forehead, the curve of her jaw, the placement of her mouth, positioned not just between her nose and lips, but also forward of them, as if something in the architecture of her face were straining outward. She wore a steel-gray necklace, Upsar Nagoy logo glinting between the dark curve of her breasts. I traced her bottom lip with my finger. You're wrong, I said. How's that? I've seen them. They exist. I closed my eyes and slept. The rain was still coming down, building puddles across the Chicago streets. We pulled onto Dearborn and parked the car in a $20 lot. Veronica squeezed my hand as we walked toward the restaurant. Wojciech was standing near the door. You couldn't miss him. Younger than I expected, pale and broad-faced, with a shaved head, dark glasses. He stood outside the restaurant, bare arms folded in front of his chest. He looked more like a bouncer than a scientist. You must be Wojciech, Veronica said, extending her hand. He hesitated a moment. I didn't expect you to be black. She accepted this with only a slight narrowing of her eyes. Certain people never do. This is my associate, John. I nodded and shook his hand, thinking, typical Eastern European lack of tact. It wasn't racism. It was just that people didn't come to this country knowing what not to say. They didn't understand the racial context. On the floor of the East Chicago Steel Plant, I'd once had a Russian researcher ask me, loudly, how I could tell the Mexican workers from the Puerto Ricans. He was honestly curious. You don't, I told him. Ever. A hostess walked us down dark carpet, past rows of potted bamboo, and seated us at a table near the back. The waitress brought us our drinks. Wojciech took his glasses off and rubbed the bridge of his nose. The lenses were prescription, I noticed. Over the last decade, surgery had become so cheap and easy in the States that it was mostly anachronists and foreigners that wore glasses anymore. Wojciech took a long swig of his Goose Island and got right to the point. We need to discuss price. Veronica shook her head. First we need to know how it's made. That information is what you'll be paying for. His accent was thick, but he spoke slowly enough to understand. He opened his hand and showed us a small gray flash drive, the kind you'd pay $30 for at Best Buy. His fingers curled back into a fist. This is data you'll understand. And you? Veronica asked. He smiled. I understand enough to know what it is worth. Where is it from? Donetsk, originally. After that, Chinisau Laboratory, until about two years ago. Now the work is owned by a publicly traded company which shall, for the time being, remain nameless. The work is top secret. Only a few people at the company even know about the breakthrough. I have all the files saved. Now we discuss price. Veronica was silent. She knew better than to make the first offer. Wojciech let the silence draw out. 
113,000, he said. That's a pretty exact number, Veronica said. Because that's exactly twice what I'll entertain as a first counter offer. Veronica blinked. So you'll take half that? You offer 56,500? My answer is no, I am sorry. But here is where I rub my chin, and because I'm feeling generous, I tell you we can split the difference. We are negotiating, no? Then one of us does the math, and it comes out to 85,000. Is that number round enough for you? I liked the 56,000 better. 85 minimum. That is too much. What, I should let you steal from me? You talked me down from 113 already. I can go no further. There's no way we... Wojciech held up his hand. 85 in three days. I don't know if we can get it in three days. If no, then I disappear. It is simple. Veronica glanced at me. I spoke for the first time. How do we even know what we'd be paying for? You expect us to pay 85 grand for what's on some flash drive? Wojciech looked at me and frowned. No, of course not. He opened his other fist. For this, too. He dropped something on the table, something that looked like a small red wire. People have died for this. He gestured toward the red wire. You may pick it up. I looked closely. It wasn't one wire, it was two. Two rubber-coated wires like what you'd find behind a residential light switch. He noticed our confusion. The coating is for protection and to make it visible, he said. Why does it need protection? Not it. You. The coating protects you. Veronica stood and looked at me. Let's go. He's been wasting our time. No, wait, he said. Look. He picked up one of the wires. He lifted it delicately by one end, and the other wire lifted two, rising from the table's surface like some magician's illusion. I saw then that I'd been wrong. It was not two wires after all, but one. The coating was stripped from ten centimeters in the middle, Wojciech said, so you could see what was underneath. But in the dim light, there was nothing to see. I bent close. Nothing at all. In the spot where the coating had been removed, the strand inside was so fine that it lacked a cross-section. There was only the hint of something, a thing that might or might not be there at the very edge of perception. What is it? I asked. An allotrope of carbon, fullerene structural family. You take it, he said. Do test to confirm, but remember, is just a neat toy without this. He held out the flash drive. This explains how the carbon nanotubes are manufactured, how they can be woven into sheets, what lab is developing the technique, and more. I stared at him. The longest carbon nanotubes anybody has been able to make are just over a centimeter. Until now, he said. Now they can be miles. In three days you come back. You give me the 85,000, I give you the data and information about where the graphene rope is being developed. Veronica picked up the wire. All right, 
she said. Three days. Iron and fire and dark, cool water. In places the mills jut for miles out into the lake, built on mounds of slag, the original shoreline obliterated. My father had been a steel worker, as was his father before him. My great-grandfather, though, had been here before the mills. He'd been a builder. He was here when the Lake Michigan shoreline was unbroken sand from Illinois to St. Joseph. He built Bailey Cemetery around the turn of the century, a great stone mausoleum in which some of the area's earliest settlers were buried. Tourists visit the place now. It's on some list of historic sites, and once a summer I take my sister's daughters to see it, careful to pick up the brochure. There is a street in Porter named after him, my great-grandfather. Not because he was important, but because he was the only person who lived there. It was the road to his house, so they gave it his name. Now by-levels crowd the street. He was here before the cities, before the kingdoms of rust and fire, before the mills came and ate the beaches. I try to imagine what this part of Indiana must have looked like then, woods and wetlands and rolling dunes. It must have been beautiful. Sometimes I walk out to the pier at night and watch the ore boats swing through the darkness. From the water, the mill looks like any city, any huge, sprawling city. You can see the glow of a thousand lights. You hear the trains and the rumble of heavy machines. Then the blast furnace taps a heat, a false dawn glow of red and orange, flames making dragon's fire on the rolling Lake Michigan waves, lighting up the darkness like hell itself. The drive back to Indiana was quiet. The rain had stopped. We drove with the windows half open, letting the wind flutter in, both of us lost in thought. The strand, that's what we call it later, was tucked safely into her purse. Do you think it's for real? she asked. We'll know tomorrow. You can do the testing at your lab? Yeah, I said. Do you think he is who he says he is? No, he's not even trying. He called it a graphene rope, which isn't quite right. So, I said, clusters of tubes do naturally aggregate into ropes linked together by van der Waals forces. It's the kind of slip only somebody familiar with the theory would make. So he's more familiar with it than he lets on. Maybe, but there's no way to know, she said. The next day I waited until the other researchers had gone home, and then I took the strand out of my briefcase and laid it on the lab bench. I locked the door to the materials testing lab and energized the tinsel machine. The fluorescent lights flickered. It was a small thing, the strand. It seemed insignificant as it rested there on the bench, a scrap of insulating wire from an electrician's toolbox. Yet, it was a pivot point around which the world would change if it was what it was supposed to be. If it was what it was supposed to be, the world had already changed. We were just finding out about it. The testing took most of the night. When I finished, I walked back to my office and opened a bottle I kept in the bottom drawer of a filing cabinet. I sat and sipped. It's warm in my office. My office is a small cubby in the back room of the lab, a thrown-together thing made by wall dividers and shelves. It's an office because my desk and computer sit there. Otherwise, it might be confused with a closet or 
small storage room. File cabinets line one side. There are no windows. To my left, a hundred sticky notes feather the wall. The other wall is metal, white, magnetic. A dozen refrigerator magnets hold calendars, pictures, papers. There is a copy of the lab's phone directory, a copy of the lab's quality policy, and a sheet of paper on which the geometry of crystal systems is described. The R&D directory of services is there, held to the wall by a magnetic clip. All the phone numbers I might need. A picture of my sister, blonde, unsmiling, caught in the act of speaking to me over a paper plate of fried chicken, the photo taken at a summer party three years ago. There is an Oxford Instruments periodic table. There's also a picture of a sailboat, blue waves, and a picture of the Upsar Nagoy Global Headquarters, based out of London. Veronica finally showed up a few minutes past midnight. I was watching the butterfly as she walked through the door. Well, she asked, I couldn't break it. What do you mean? I couldn't get a tinsel strength because I couldn't get it to fail. Without failure, there's no result. What about the other tests? It took more than 32,000 pounds per square inch without shearing. It endured 800 degrees Fahrenheit without a measurable loss of strength or conductivity. Transmission electron microscopy allowed for direct visualization. I took these pictures. I handed her the stack of printed sheets. She went through them one by one. Veronica blinked. She sat. What does this mean? It means that I think they've done it, I said. Under impossibly high pressures, nanotubes can link, or so the theory holds. Carbon bonding is described by quantum chemistry orbital hybridization. and They've swapped some sp2 bonds for the sp3 bonds of diamond. She looked almost sad. She kissed me. The kiss was sad. What are its uses? Everything. Literally almost everything. A great many things steel can do, these carbon nanotubes will do better. It's super light and super strong. Perfect for aircraft. This material moves the fabled space elevator into the realm of possibility. There'd still be a lot of R&D necessary. Yes, of course. It'll be years down the road, but eventually the sky's the limit. There's no telling what this material will do if it's manufactured right. It could be used for everything from suspension bridges to spacecraft. It could open our way to the stars. We're at the edge of a revolution. I looked down at the strand. After a long time, I finally said what had been bothering me for the last 16 hours. But why did Wojciech come to you? I said. Of all places, why bring this to a steel company? She looked at me. If you invent an engine that runs on water, why offer it to an oil company? She picked up the strand. Only one reason to do that, John. She glanced down at the red wire in her hand. Because the oil company is certain to buy it. That night we drank. I stood at the window of her townhome and looked out at her quiet neighborhood, watching the expensive cars roll by on Ridge Road. The Ridge Road, which neatly bisects Lake County. Land on the south, higher, land to the north, low, easing toward urban sprawl and the marshes and Lake Michigan. 
That long, low ridge of land on which the road was built represented the glacial maxim, the exact line where the glacier stopped during the last ice age. Pushing all that dirt and stone in front of it like a plow before it melted and receded and became the Great Lakes. And thousands of years later, road builders would stand on that ridge and think to themselves how easy it would be to follow the natural curve of the land. And so they built what they came to build and called it the only name that would fit, Ridge Road, the exact line in the region where one thing became another. I wrapped the naked strand around my finger and drew it tight, watching the bright red blood well up from where it contacted my skin. Because in addition to being strong and thin, the strand had the property of being sharp. For the tests, I'd stripped away most of the rubber coating, leaving only a few inches of insulation at the ends. The rest was exposed strand, nearly invisible. You cut yourself, Veronica said. She parted her full lips and drew my finger into her mouth. The first time I'd told her I loved her, it was an accident. In bed, half asleep, I'd said it. Good night, I love you. A thing that was out of my mouth before I even realized it. A habit from an old relationship come rising up out of me the way every old relationship lives just under the skin of every new one. All the promises, all the possibilities, right there under the skin. I'd felt her stiffen beside me, and an hour later she nudged me awake. She was sitting up, arms folded across her bare breasts, as defensive as I'd ever seen her. I realized she hadn't slept at all. I heard what you said. There was anger in her voice, and whole complex layers of pain. But I denied it. You're hearing things. Though, of course, it was true, what I'd said. Even if saying it was an accident, it had been true for a while. The night after I tested the strand, I lay in bed and watched her breathing, blankets kicked to the floor. Light through the window glinted off her necklace, a thin herringbone pattern, some shiny new steel, Upsar Nagoy emblem across her beautiful dark skin, such an odd interlinking of metal. They gave this to you? She fingered the necklace, still half awake. They gave one to all of us, she said. Management perk. Supposed to be worth a mint. The logo ruins it, I said, like a tag. Everything is tagged one way or another, she said. I met him once. Who? The name on the necklace. Nagoy, you met him? At a facility in Frankfurt. He came through with his group, shook my hand. He was taller than I thought, but his handshake was this flaccid, aqueous thing, straight-fingered like a flipper. It was obvious he loathed the Western tradition. I was prepared to like him, prepared to be impressed, or to find him merely ordinary. She was silent for so long I thought she might have fallen asleep. I've never been one of those people who judged a person by their handshake, she said. But still, I can't remember a handshake that gave me the creeps like that. They paid $66 billion for the Upsar acquisition. Can you imagine that much money? That many employees? That much power? When his daughter went through her divorce, the company stock dropped by 2%. His daughter's divorce did that. Can you believe that? Do you know how much 2% is? A lot. They have billions invested in infrastructure alone. 
more in hard assets and research facilities, not to mention the mills themselves. Those assets are quantifiable and linked to actuarial tables and translate into real dollars. Real dollars which can be used to leverage more takeovers, and the monster keeps growing. If Nagoy's daughter's divorce dipped the share price by 2%, what do you think would happen if a new carbon product competitor came to market? I ran a finger along her necklace. You think they'll try to stop it? Nagoy's money is in steel. If a legitimate alternative reached the market, then each mill, each asset all across the world would suddenly be worth less. Billions of dollars would blink out of existence. So what happens? We get the data. I write my report. I give my presentation. The board suddenly gets interested in buying a certain company in Europe. If they won't sell, Upsar Nagoy buys all the stock and owns them anyway, then shuts them down. Suppression won't work. The Luddites never win in the long run. She smiled. The three richest men in the world have as much money as the poorest 49 nations, she said, combined. I watched her face. She continued, the yearly gross product of the planet is something like $55 trillion, and yet there are millions of people who are still trying to live on less than $3 a day. You trust business to do the right thing? No, but I trust the market. A better product will always find its way to the consumer. Even Upsar Nagoy can't stop that. You only say that because you don't understand how it really works. That might have been true a long time ago. The Upsar Nagoy board does hostile takeovers for a living, and they're not going to release a technology that will devalue their core assets. Veronica was silent. Why did you get into steel? I asked. What brought you here? Money, she said. Just money. Then why haven't you told your bosses about Wojciech? I don't know. And are you going to tell them? She was silent. Are you going to tell them? No, she said. I don't think I am. There was a long pause. What are you going to do? Buy it, she said. Buy the data. And then what? After you've bought it. After I bought it, I'm going to post it on the internet. The drive to meet Wojciech seemed to take forever. The traffic was stop and go until we reached Halstead, and it took us nearly an hour to reach downtown Chicago. We parked in the same $20 lot, and Veronica squeezed my hand again as we walked toward the restaurant. But this time Wojciech wasn't standing outside looking like a bouncer. He wasn't looking like anything, because he wasn't there. We waited a few minutes and went inside. We asked for the same table. We didn't speak. There was no reason to speak. After a few moments, a man in a suit came and sat. He was a gray man in a gray suit. He wore black leather gloves. He was in his 50s, but he was in his 50s the way certain breeds of athletes enter their 50s, broad and solid and blocky-shouldered. He had a lantern jaw and thin, sandy hair receding from a broad forehead. The waitress came and asked if he needed anything to drink. Yes, please, the man said. Bourbon. And, oh, for my friends here, a Bailey's for him, and uh, what was it? 
He looked at Veronica. A Coke, right? Veronica didn't respond. The man's accent was British. A Coke, the man told the waitress. Thank you. He smiled and turned toward us. Did you know that bourbon was the official spirit of the U.S. by act of Congress? We were silent. That's why I always used to make a point of drinking it when I came to the States. I wanted to enjoy the authentic American experience. I wanted to drink bourbon like Americans drink bourbon. But then I discovered an unsettling secret in my travels. The man took something from the inside pocket of his suit jacket and set it on the table. Glasses. Wojciech's glasses. One of the prescription lenses shattered. The man caressed the bent frames with his finger. I discovered that Americans don't really drink bourbon. A great many Americans have never so much as tasted it. So then why is it the official spirit of your country? We had no opinion. We were without opinion. Would you like to hear what I think? The man said. He bent close and spoke low across the table. I've developed a theory. I think it was a lie all along. I think someone in your Congress probably had his hand in the bourbon business all those years ago, and sales were flagging. So they came up with the idea to make bourbon the official spirit of the country as a way to line their own pockets. Would you like to hear something else I've discovered in my travels? No? Well, I'll tell you anyway. I discovered that I don't care much one way or the other. I discovered that I like bourbon. And I feel like I'm drinking the most American drink of them all, because your Congress said so. Lie or not, the ability to believe a lie can be an important talent. You're probably wondering who I am. No, Veronica said. Good, then you're smart enough to realize it doesn't matter. You're smart enough to realize that if I'm here, that means your friend isn't coming back. Where is he? Veronica asked. I can't say. But rest assured that wherever he is, he sends his regrets. Are you here for the money? The money? I couldn't care less about your money. Where's the flash drive? Veronica asked. You mean... This? The man held the gray flash drive between leathered finger and thumb, then returned it to the breast pocket of his neat gray suit. This is the closest you're going to get to it, I'm afraid. Your friend seemed to think it belonged to him. I disabused him of that misconception. What do you want? Veronica asked. I want what everyone wants, my dear. But what I'm here for today... What I'm being paid to do is to tie up some loose ends. You can help me. Silence. Where is the strand? he asked. He never gave it to us. The man's gray eyes looked pained, like a father with a wayward child. I'm disappointed, he said. I thought we were developing some trust here. Do you know what loyalty is? Yes, 
No, I don't think you do. Loyalty to your company. Loyalty to the cause. You have shown that you have no loyalty at all. You had some very important people who looked after you, Veronica. You had some important friends. You're from Upsar Nagoy? Who do you think? I... You have embarrassed certain people who have invested their trust in you. You have embarrassed some very important people. That wasn't my intention. In my experience, it never is. He spread his hands. Yet, here we are. What were you planning on doing with the data once you obtained it? Veronica was silent for a moment. Then, I don't know what you're talking about. The pain returned to the man's eyes. He shook his head sadly. I'm going to ask you a question in a moment. If you lie to me again, I promise you. He leaned forward. I promise you that I will make you regret it. Do you believe that? Veronica nodded. Good. Do you have the strand with you? No. Then this is what is going to happen now, he said. We're going to leave, we're going to drive to where the strand is, and you're going to give it to me. If I did have it somewhere, and if I did give it to you, what happens then? Probably you'll have to look for another job, I can't say. He leaned back in his chair, taking on a pleasant expression again. That's between you and your company. I'm just here to obtain the strand. The man stood. He laid a hundred dollar bill on the table and grabbed Veronica's arm. The way he grabbed her arm, he could have been a prom date, just a gentleman walking his lady out the door. Only I could see his fingers dug deep into her flesh. I followed them out, walking behind them. When we got near the front door, I picked up one of the trendy bamboo pots and brought it down on the man's head with everything I had. The crash was shocking. Every head in the restaurant swiveled toward us. I bent and fished the flash drive from his breast pocket. Run! I told her. We hit the night air, sprinting. What the hell are you doing? she screamed. Wojtek is dead, I told her. We were next. Veronica climbed behind the wheel and sped out of the parking lot just as the gray man stumbled out the front door of the restaurant. The BMW was fast, faster than anything I would have suspected. Veronica drove with the pedal to the floor, weaving in and out of traffic. Pools of light ticked past. They'll still come after us, she said. Yeah. What are we going to do? We have to stay ahead of them. How do we do that? Where do we go? We get through tonight... And then we worry about the rest. We can hop a flight somewhere. No, what happens tonight decides everything. That strand is our only insurance. Without the strand, we're dead. Her hands tightened on the steering wheel. Where is it? I asked. I left it at the house. Veronica kept the accelerator floored. I'm sorry I got you into this, she said. Don't be. We were almost to her house when Veronica's forehead creased. She took the turn onto Ridge, frowning. She looked confused for a second, then surprised. Her hand went to her neck. It happened so quickly. I had time to notice her necklace gone flat gray. There was an instant of recognition in her eyes before the alloy phase changed, an instant of panic, 
and then the necklace shifted, writhed, herringbone plate tightening like razor wire. She gasped and let go of the wheel, clutching at her throat. I grabbed the wheel with one hand, trying to grab her necklace with the other, but it was already gone, tightened through her skin, blood spilling from the jugulars as she shrieked. Then even her shrieks changed, gurgling as the blade cut through her voice box. I screamed and the car spun out of control, the sound of squealing tires and we hit the curb sideways, the crunch of metal and glass, world trading places with black sky, rolling three times before coming to a stop. Sirens, the creak of a spinning wheel, I looked over and Veronica was dead, dead. That look, gone forever, gears in her eyes, gone silent and still. The Upsar Nagoy logo slid from her wound as the necklace phase changed again, expanding to its original size. I thought of labs in Asia and parallel projects, Veronica saying, they gave one to all of us. I climbed out of the wreck and stood swaying, the sirens closer now. I sprinted the remaining few blocks to her house. When I got to her front door, I tried the knob, locked. I stood panting. When I caught my breath, I kicked the door in. I walked inside, up the stairs. The strand was in Veronica's jewelry box on her dresser. I glanced around the room. It was the last time I'd stand there, I knew. The last time I'd be in her bedroom. I saw the four-poster bed where we'd laid so often, and the grief came down on me like a freight train. I did my best to push it away. Later, I thought, later, I'll deal with it. When there was time. I closed my eyes and saw Veronica's face. Coming down the stairs, I stopped. The front door was closed. I didn't remember closing it. I stood silent, listening. The first blow knocked me over the chair. The gray man came again, open hands extended, smiling. I was going to be nice, the man said. I was going to be quick, but then you hit me with a pot. Some flash of movement and his leg swung, connecting with the side of my head. Now I'm going to take my time and enjoy this. I tried to climb to my feet, but the world swam away off to the side. He kicked me under my armpit, and I felt ribs break. Come on, stand up, he said. I tried to breathe. Another kick, another. I pulled myself up the side of the couch. He caught me with a chipping blow to the face. My lips split wide open, blood pouring onto Veronica's white carpet. His leg came up, connecting with my ribs again. I felt another snap. I collapsed onto my back, writhing in agony. His leg rose and fell as I tried to curl in on myself, some instinct to protect my vital organs. He landed a solid kick to my face and my head snapped back. The world went black. He was crouching over me when I opened my eyes. That smile. Come on, he said. Stand up. He dragged me to my feet and slammed me against the wall. A right hand like iron pinned me to the wall by my throat. Where is the strand? I tried to speak, but my voice pinched shut. He smiled wider, turning an ear toward me. What's that? He said, I can't hear you. Some flutter of movement and the other hand came up. He laid the straight razor against my cheek, cold steel. 
I'm going to ask you one more time, and then I'm going to start cutting slices down your face. I'm going to do it slowly so you can feel it. He eased up on my windpipe just enough for me to draw a breath. Now tell me, where is the strand? I looped the strand around his forearm. Right here, I said, and pulled. There was little resistance, just a slight snag where it parted bone. The man's hand came off with a thump, spurting blood in a fountain. The razor dropped to the carpet. He had time to look confused before the pain hit, then surprised, like Veronica. He bent for the razor, reaching to pick it up with his other hand, and this time I hooked my arm around his neck, looped the cord tight, and pulled again. Warmth, like bath water on my face. He slumped to the floor. I picked up the razor and limped out the front door. Eighty-five grand buys you a lot of distance. It takes you places. It'll take you across continents if you need it to. It will introduce you to the right people. There is no carbon tube industry, not yet. No monopoly to pay or protect. And the data I downloaded to the Internet is just starting to make noise. Nagoy still comes for me in my dreams and in my waking paranoia, a man with a razor, a man with steel in his fist. Already, Upsar Nagoy's stock has started to slide as those long thinkers in the international investment markets gaze into their crystal balls and see a future that might, just maybe, be made of different stuff. Upsar Nagoy made a grab for that European company, but it cost them more than they ever expected to pay, and the carbon project was buried, just as Veronica said it would be. Only now the data is on the net for everyone to see. Carbon has this property. It bonds powerfully and promiscuously to itself. In one form, carbon is diamond. In another, it builds itself into structures we are just beginning to understand. We're not smarter than the ones who came before us, the ones who built the pyramids and navigated oceans by the stars. If we've done more, it's because we've had better materials. What would da Vinci have done with polycarbon? Seven billion people in the world. Maybe now we find out. I think of what I said to Veronica about alchemy, the art of turning one thing into another, that maybe it's been alchemy all along. There you go. What a story. Fantastic. Everything. Begin, middle, end. Amazing story. Ted, thank you so much. David, thank you again. What a great narration. Just totally captivating voice. Right, we have our second fact article today. It is by none other than English assassin and talking everything about Kim Stanley Robinson. This is actually a guy I have not read. There's quite a few I haven't read, but I've got quite a few of his books and, you know, I haven't read them, but... I don't know if everyone can remember, English Assassin came on, I played a little trailer from him a while ago. He was a gentleman that very prominent on the forums, but was moving over to Mexico to kind of live over there and work as like a kind of interpreter, I think it was, or a English teacher, English language teacher. I think that's, that might have been it. And English Assassin is back. So, and he's, you know, he's, he says it'd be just nice to kind of help out on the Starship Sova. 
God, get them on board. They are. <laughs> Soon as someone says that, right, get them round in there. So, English Assassin, thank you so much for this. Hi, Tony. Hello to all the Starship Stoker listeners out there. My name is Simon Ingrew, uh, also known as the English Assassin, um, where I can be found on the forums under that name. Basically, uh, for some time now, I've been trying to think of a way to put something back into the mighty ship that is the sofa. Thinking of a donation, but to be honest, I'm pretty skint right now, and I, I can't see that situation changing anytime soon. So um, I decided on something more practical, and uh, as it's turned out, something slightly more tricky because this is take 500. So um, hopefully it goes okay this time around. And uh, yeah, my respect is grows every time I I, I, I take another te- attempt to do this because frankly, um, it's taking all day. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all good fun, so let's go for it. My attempt, my idea was basically just to do something, you know, ripping off the Starship Surfer in a, every way and do an old style kind of show, a little feature on an author or a novel or something remotely genre related, whatever that might be. To kick off with, I thought I'd do something unambiguously science fiction, and that is. Um, was one of my favourite authors, and I still an author I vastly respect, is Kim Stanley Robinson. I don't want to go into too many nitty-gritty details about Kim Stanley Robinson's life, partly due to time, but also partly due to the... You can read that on Wikipedia, should you desire. But he's a California-based writer, um, and uh, as I'm sure you, you, you know, if you're a big science fiction fan, you probably know he is incredibly environmentally and ecologically-minded. And uh, these are themes that are continually explored in, in most of his fiction. Uh, he has won two Hugos, two Nebula, um, many nominations. Apart from that, he's won uh, World Fantasy Awards, John W. Campbell Memorial Awards, and several Locus Awards. He is incredibly well respected within the genre, but is um, one of the, the, the lucky science fiction authors to um, have some attention throughout him from the mainstream literary press as well. Kim Stanley Robinson um, has several themes that he um, tends to explore in his novels. Um, ecology and sustainability um, are probably his number one hobby horse. He is a, himself an outdoors man very much. He's a mountain climber and he um, very much has an understanding of uh, human interactions with the environment, with the landscape on a personal level, spiritual level, and um, on a on a social and environmental level as well. The impacts of, uh, of the humans have on the environment and the effect that the environment has on us as humans. Uh, another uh, hobby horse of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson is uh, socio-economic explorations, especially into sort of utopian solutions to... Um, the problems that he sees in capitalist conspicuous consumption. He also tends to explore, um, likes to explore technology, looking for, uh, uh, um, again, a utopian kind of viewpoint of, of human, humanity in, in harmony with technology. Um, and he explores these kind of concepts predominantly through sort of scientists and uh, people surrounding science in some way. However, uh, Kiss Annie Robson has a, a very much a sort of a Kurt Vonnegut kind of uh, 
view on science and technology that, that you see scientists should take responsibility for their um, um, for their, their actions, their inventions, their their, their ideas, um, and they should be very much see themselves as citizens of the of of a, of a wider community of the world rather than in in their little sort of lab working away on some kind of chemical warfare or something. Tim Sandy Robinson for me has several uh, uh, um, strengths uh, beyond his concept and his writing ability, which you know, both uh, I think he's very strong on. However, I think he's, he, the thing that always rings with me when I read a Tim Sandy Robinson novel is his his characters. His characters are, are lovely, absolutely beautifully written. Um, he has a real understanding for quirks. The little quirks that make us all human and all individuals, and he 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 understand he has a great understanding for humanity and for, for, for people. Interestingly, as well, his characters they never remain static; they develop um, throughout a novel, which is just as well because his novels tend to be very very fat, uh, especially you know, especially his famous Mars trilogy. Typically, his characters have an epiphany moment, a moment of realization, self-realization, but also a you know, realization of their of their, their place in the world. Kim Sanders is an optimistic writer. He believes in solutions. He believes that humanity can find a way for its a solution for its ills, um, which of course makes him most uplifting. And uh, but he, you know, he he comes up with like you know. Seemingly kind of realistic, or at least kind of uh, uh, explainable kind of uh, ideas for the ways that humans can achieve something better for ourselves. However, perhaps a, a minor drawback is sometimes he, he, he feels naive. But despite this, and despite that, you know, most science fiction I read is incredibly pessimistic. It's you know, exploring themes of entropy and decay and what have you. Uh, you know, cosmic indifference or whatever. Yeah. Kim Sinan Robinson isn't interested in any of that. He's interested in positive solutions. Before I discuss uh, the novels that Kim Stanley Robinson is probably best known for, his Mars trilogy, I want to quickly look at his uh, earlier novels, The Three Californias trilogy, each novel telling of a different future California, um, and all from uh, a young protagonist's perspective. The first novel, World Shore, published in 1984, is a post-apocalypse novel, very much in the pastoral um, style. Perhaps it's uh, guilty of being a little cosy at times, but it's a beautifully written novel. The second of the trilogy, The Golden Coast, is a near-future dystopia, a society driven by hedonism, cars, technology, uh, basically an atomized society, effectively very similar to our own. Um, this novel particular pays particular attention to um, the Californian landscape, uh, has a real sense of place, and the history of California really comes through. Um, this is, it seems a real personal novel of Kim Sennett Robinson's. The last novel, The Pacific Edge, is a near-future utopian society of the same um, style of utopia as the dispossessed. It shows a kind of attempt to showing a realistic utopia, where even though it is a utopia, there's still personal conflict and unhappiness within that setting. 
Perhaps novel, though, that Kim Stanley Robinson is best known for is his Mars trilogy, uh, a future history of the colonisation uh, of Mars, um, told through the novels Red Mars, Green Mars and Blue Mars, which respectively cover the, colon- the initial stages of colonisation of the new frontier, its terraforming, and the eventual establishment of Mars as a uh, independent planet in itself, which of course is, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson explores his his vision of a utopian political uh, agenda through this. Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars has several ideological conflicts that run through, run through the entire trilogy. The one conflict is between the Reds and the Greens, which is a conflict regarding terraforming on Mars. Another conflict that runs through runs through the trilogy is a conflict between Earth-bound corporations and governments and their interference upon the planet Mars and the effectively Martian attempt to structure a new society, which is effectively a Kim Stanley Robinson-esque utopian society one that's in harmony with technology and the environment. Like his Californian trilogy, the Mars trilogy has a great a great sense of space and place, so much so that you can almost believe that Kim Stanley Robinson was, or will be, one of the first colonists on Mars. The level of detail makes Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars um, a, a, a true, truly amazing example of world building and certainly up there with Tolkien's Middle Earth or June or whatever after the Mars trilogy we have Antarctica which is basically the Mars trilogy revisited in a different setting a beautifully realized setting but um, there's nothing particularly new here and he then went on to perhaps his most ambitious novel The Years of Rice and Soul which is an alternate history again it's a, an epic novel spanning a good 700 years of uh, a world where European civilization were wiped out by, um, by, the, by the plague. His last trilogy was Science and the Capital, which was a bit of a departure from um, science fiction, it, possibly near future, but so near it might as well be now. And it's effectively a, an environmentally themed West Wing where global warming is on the verge of getting out of hand. For me, it's far too mundane. His next novel, which will be out this year, is called Galileo's Dream. Testament to Kim Stanley Robertson, despite the fact I found his uh, last trilogy less than satisfying, I will uh, be buying this one. Anyway, I hope if you're not familiar with Kim Stanley Robertson's work, I might have persuaded you to give it a go. And that concludes my little feature on Kim Stanley Robinson. So anyway, as Simon Ingerall, signing off. And that's Oral Delights, show number 60, I can't remember now. <laughs> Can everyone, me voice, yes, it's, it's starting to go. Second time round for man flu, don't know what the hell has happened there within... Four weeks or something, two batches of cold. English Assassin, Simon, thank you so much for that. 
Much appreciated. Like I say, that is Oral Delights. Show number wadi wadi Put to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. A great story. Great stories all around. Great articles. I'm quite proud of that one. Don't forget the ugly. We need to support this bird. Please, you know, pop over. Do the right thing. Support Starship Sova. Just go on to the front of the website. You know, you can get the private one where you get the sanatorium shows by my good self. Or just a one-off donation. Do you know what I mean? Don't forget Twitter. Starship Sova. That's my name. Come and follow me and then we'll follow everybody else and we'll be one big happy mother of a family. All treading science fiction and all sorts. Monday, don't forget Monday the 23rd, where I start to play the British science fiction nominees for the best short story. And all it is, it's just gonna be, I'm just going to little intro, the story, a little outro, nothing else, just the story. Let you just have a, a listen to them three stories. Until then, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.